This is the Future of Cyber Risk podcast, brought to you by Team Cymru. I'm your host, David Monier, fellow at Team Cymru. Let's jump right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening to another episode of the Future of Cyber Risk podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Norman Levine, Senior Manager, Cyber Risk Management of Omnicom Group, the leading a leading global marketing communications company. Thanks for chatting with us today. So, Norman, before we get started, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? Sure, absolutely, David, and thank you for having me on the show. So basically, I started in technology back in 1994, but not seriously, but I started getting interested when Hal Gore was talking about the internet. And so I, I remember, you know, being in the Dallas airport and there was a bookstore. And so I went in and I said, hey, do you have anything on the internet? And the person walked me literally to the back of the bookstore. And there were three books at that time that were on the internet and I bought one. And so I bought it and I started reading about it. And I heard about this thing called HTML. I did not have a clue. So I picked up the phone. I called a friend of mine who was very worldly in this area. And he said, Norm, do you remember the old WordStar 2000? I said, of course. He said, that's all it is. It's markup like that. Once that happened, I got it. I got it. So I built my first website called worldtrade.com in early 1994. And I actually sold the first HTML editor off of it. And it was called Hot Metal Pro. And Gosh, so it, I remember it was really, this. I remember do you? Hot Metal Pro. I do. Yeah. It was a great tool, right? Okay. And hot, what Hot Metal did, they actually sent me all of their orders, and I was shipping internationally because things were really getting warm at that point. Now I was getting orders from the Department of Navy, from major financial institutions, because they all wanted to get on the internet, and that was the way to do it. So it was really a lot of fun. But at that same time, which is kind of interesting, I get a call. And it's from some folks in China. And, and it turned out they were offering me $100,000 for the domain name that I own, worldtrade.com. As it turned out, it was Jack Ma from Alibaba. Mm-hmm. And so had I known it was him, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. I probably said, yeah, I'll sell it to you for 1% of whatever you're doing, right? Sure. Didn't happen. <laughs> so, but it was a lot of fun. And, you know, we continued on with it. And this site stayed up for quite a while, actually until 9-11, when actually at that point, I had to take it down and redo the site because people were pinging me because they're thinking worldtrade.com has got to be part of the World Trade Centers. And it wasn't. So I actually reoriented the site so people could go to certain places, you know, where to reach certain people, et cetera. Sure. um, Thank you for that. Thank you for that. That was very kind of you. Well, you know, you got to do the right thing. And I'm a big believer in playing it forward. So, you know, actually, you mentioned me being a senior manager at Omnicom. And actually, today is my one-year anniversary. Well, so hats off. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Great company to work with. It's mammoth, as you can imagine, with over 77,000 employees. So we're global in nature. You know, and we are the, if you want to think about it, the number one advertising and marketing company in the world, you know, and so I'm here, I'm loving it, and it's been a lot of fun. Well, so you've covered a lot of ground, obviously a bunch of time. Interestingly enough, I actually uh, became interested in technology around the same time when you were doing that. 
when you were getting started, I was also kind of getting started. I was a, a young Marine at the time and I was starting to get exposed to, I believe it was America Online and whatnot was kind of my first intro to the World Wide Web, you know, kind of breaking out of the BBS world into, you know, whatever you want to call it, markup language land, you know. Uh, sure. Uh, Mosaic, I think, was our uh, browser du jour. Oh, uh, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. I remember that. Absolutely. So, but you've covered a lot of ground and obviously then as a result, you know, a lot of time. Let me ask you, how have you seen cyber risk, you know, evolve over that time? Yeah, over 20 years. Boy, has it ever, right? Sure. It's, it's, gone, it's gone from, probably most of your listeners won't remember this, but when the internet first started and we were using email, if you sent an email to a person who did not know you, you would get flamed by them. And, you know, today, that's not going to happen. But if you, if you recall, that's kind of sure. going back way back when, actually 24, 25 years when that was going on. Sure. But when we talk about where, where have we gone and where are we going, I think there's a number of things that we have to think about today. The first is, you know, increased complexity. When you think about that, the growth of the internet and all of the connected devices have made the cyber threat landscape more complex. Mm -hmm. We just have more to do and more to look at. Basically, you have a wider range of attack vectors and you have more sophisticated tactics that are being employed by the threat actors. So that, that's one thing we have to take into consideration. Secondly is the rise of ransomware. It's not trivial. There are many, many threat actors out there that are doing that. And I, I would suspect it's really your nation states that are doing it for the most part. So you've got China, you've got Iran, you've got Russia, and you've got North Korea. It's those countries that are doing a lot of it. And it's, it's tough stuff. You know, it really is. Luckily, we have the FBI here in the United States that is working with a lot of companies if they choose to let the FBI know. But you have to remember, most companies will not report the ransomware. They'd rather pay it than talk about it because if they're a publicly held co corporation, it causes loss of reputation, sure. stock prices, everything else goes to hell in a handbasket. So there's that, right? And, you know, as I said, this is a lot of it is the state-sponsored attacks. It's all the nation states that I just mentioned that are increasingly turning to cyber attack. Really, it's a tool trip, espionage, sabotage, and, you know, influencing operations. So that's where we are there. Also, you have to look at the internet of things. That's also another issue that's affecting where we're going. I mean, the growing number of connected devices just has created an attack service that keeps expanding. I did a check in my own home a couple of days ago. I had over 30 items that were connected to my network. I mean, when you think about it, you know, my iPhone, my iWatch, my iPad, my MacBook Pro, all of that is connected. So you have, in some cases, now people are getting what your television set. If you have Apple, that's connected. Your refrigerator, if you want that connected. So it goes on and on. But, you know, clearly that increases the complexity and the possibility of increasing the easiness of being attacked, right? And then are my other two favorite areas that we're just starting to see. And I have to put a smile on my face for this one, and that's the emergence of artificial intelligence and machine learning. 
If done correctly, they're really great tools to help you in terms of your security and monitoring your, your systems throughout your environment. But they could also be used to attack companies through their misuse. And I don't know how we're going to manage that. But, you know, David, I, I look at it as a problem that, you know, really, I don't know how we're going to do it. Hopefully our government, all our other countries will get together to join and put some restrictions on how AI is used. So basically, you know, just in summary, you know, the cyber risk landscape clearly has become more complex, dynamic, and challenging over the last 20 years. And that's just the bottom line to it. You know, you've got to adapt and evolve within your security strategies to ensure that that stuff is being covered. Because if it's not, you're going to get hacked sooner than later. Yeah, I absolutely agree. You know, one of the things I think that a lot of people overlook, and, you know, given that we both outed ourselves as people who started doing this in the 90s, maybe we take it for granted. But, you know, evolution implicitly suggests you started somewhere else and now you are moving to a new place, right? And these kind of foundational concepts that we've been able to carry forward as people who have, again, I hate to say this, but who are old and been in this for a while, you know, I often find myself drawing on experiences that I actually originally learned then, you know, 2004, 2005. I mean, we're talking 20 years ago, 20 plus years ago is where I actually originally was exposed to the concept, but that I find myself drawing on those experiences because as time has gone on and as risk has evolved, like you've described, really when it comes down to it, it's more like motives have evolved, but like the drivers or the tools that people are using maybe have gotten better. But the, when it comes down to it, the people who are behind these things, it seems, you know, like it's one of those, oh, what's the adage of, the more things change, the more they stay the same. They stay uh, the same, right. Uh, and and, I, and I, they do. And they really, really do. I totally agree. So I saw, uh, doing my homework, Omnicom, I saw your CEO recently uh, talked about doubling down, you know, basically on AI. They see AI as a powerful tool in marketing space. So it's interesting to me that you also, you know, you say the kind of the same thing, but obviously in a totally different application. Myself, I have to admit, I won't say I'm dubious or skeptical, but I still don't quite see it. I don't yet see, I mean, it's still kind of like a card trick. It's interesting. It's amazing, but I don't quite yet see like, well, what would I do with it? So, but it will be interesting. I definitely agree with you. It will be interesting to see how AI impacts us, if you will, and how it changes our industry, the security industry, at least, especially in particular about predictive threat intelligence. I, I think it has great potential there. But the thing that I struggle with when I think about AI is like, how are we going to convince ourselves to believe what this machine is telling us when we know that it we're under the right influence, a machine can tell you anything someone else wants it to. So how do we learn to trust these things that we know are so fragile? That's kind of the hardest part. It's interesting you say that because as much as I think average, you know, AI has possibilities, it scares me as well. Yeah. Because, you know, if the military were to use it as an example, what are going to be the constraints? How are they going to manage it? There was a great movie that's maybe 30 years old. It was produced by Joseph E. Levine. No relationship to me. Although I was friends, I was friends with his son, Paul, but the point being that he produced a movie called The Forbin Project. And basically it's where the United States turned over 
all of their operations of their missile silos and everything else through artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. Well, what happened was this massive computer then somehow connected to a Russian computer that the Russians designed. And the long and the short of it is that between the two, they started talking, their intelligence approved, and they eventually took over the world. Sure. And the way they did it was if the military tried to do anything, they would launch a nuclear weapon saying, okay, here's your choice. We're going to destroy that city or you can comply. Sure. So, and when the military and everybody else complied, they, you know, they blew up the prospective uh, nuclear weapon. No, absolutely. So, you know, the movie War Games with Whopper. Uh, yes, uh, yes. Computer system very, very similar. Yes. And I don't know if you've seen the recent Boston Dynamics video of their, the agility. Uh, yeah. Yeah, the agility yep. of their latest bipedal robot is absolutely astounding. I mean, basically, this thing's just ready to be handed a rifle, and it's ready to take care of business. And like I said, you know, we're talking about movies now, but I hate to say it, I've seen this in a movie. I, and so for all these reasons, I think to myself, what are we doing? But anyway, aside from AI, you know, given your experience and whatnot, what tools yeah. and uh, security tools and, you know, technologies are you paying attention to outside of AI uh, right now? Okay, fair enough. So that question, immediately when you say that, what comes to mind is my background is IT audit. I was a manager for three and a half years. I came in as a manager at KPMG, stayed there. But I learned a lot, you know, how to audit, what to look at, what do you look for? And I have to tell you, being a little paranoid is not a bad thing, you know, when you're an auditor, because you want to look at stuff. So when I look at tools and things, I really think about within the space of third-party vendor risk management. And one of the very first things that comes to mind is the questionnaire that you want to send to your prospective vendors. To me, that is the beginning of one of the most important pieces that go into play. And to me, there's really only really three ways to go. First, you have the SIG, which is the Shared Assessments Questionnaire. Then you have the NIST 853. You have the NIST 800-171A. And then you have the CAIQ. People refer to it as the CAKE, which is the Cloud Questionnaire. Mm -hmm. But let me first talk a little bit. So when you look at the NIST 853, it's a great document. And it has about as many questions as the full SIG does of roughly 1,028, give or take. But with the NIST, they have control statements within their platform that you as the user have to convert into questions to ask your vendor. Mm-hmm. Where you have with the SIG, they already asked the questions. And the nice thing about the SIG is that there's a board that reviews all of the questions annually. So as technology changes, so do the questions within the SIG. And today, more and more companies are adopting the SIG. I know one of my previous companies, we, I was responsible for vetting all of the tier one vendors. And those are the vendors where a minimum, I think, of a million dollars were spent up to a hundred million or, and more. And we there used the SIG, all 1,028 questions. Now, but what's nice about it, it's that with the SIG is that you can take that questionnaire and you can reduce it down to a small version of that full 1,028. And I say that because not every vendor is going to be the same. You're going to have your highly complex vendors, you know, in the world, but then you're going to have the small three and four 
person theme that's going to maybe help you. Sure. Clearly, and you cannot ask a company that has three or four vendors about Kubernetes or baseboard management controllers because they don't sure. exist. Right. And they'll probably go to sleep on you if you ask those questions of them. But so you have to really simplify stuff. Do you have multi-factor authentication or whatever? Clearly, the way I look at it, though, is if there's a small team of three or four people, I don't care what they tell me in the questionnaire. I'm probably going to give them my Windows 365 security stack, put it on their personal computers, and they want to work with us. They're going to log in through that. That's how it's going to work. Because when you're that small, I can't run the risk of having it done any other way. I have to make sure that they're secure. Because think about, I go back to Target, and you remember the Target, when they got breached, that was through their was through their HVAC vendor because their vendor didn't have good controls in place. So sure, because of that, you're going to be small. I'm not going to run the risk. So I think that's the first thing. I think other platforms, though, are really good to think about, sort of like OneTrust. To me, they've done it right. So if you're a company and you're struggling and trying to put together a full risk program, you may want to consider a company like OneTrust. I've seen their stuff and it's simple. You know, it works. They know how to manage it because that's the only thing that they do is help you manage risk. Unlike a lot of other companies that, oh yeah, we can do that plus A, B, C, D, and E. But here they're focused on that and it stays that way. So it's, it's something that I would think and suggest that, you know, pretty much anybody look at that's in this space of uh, third-party vendor risk management, because it's, it's a good way to go. Now, you may do all of that. And so now you're what's left, right? Because you've done your reviews, you've asked your questions, you've asked the vendor to provide you with their SOC 2 Type 2, maybe your ISO 27001 and high trust report. But those are all point-in-time documents. They're historic. Mm-hmm. So what do you do? Well, the next thing you have to think about is continuous monitoring. And there are some really good tools out there. You can pick your poison, as I say. It could be security scorecard, BitSight, could be sure. Black Guide, it could be UpGuard. It could but, be Team Pummery's uh, Orbit. We make one yeah, ourselves. <laughs> that's right. There you go. But, you know, you got to have continuous monitoring. Clearly, they're going to be looking at the outside, you know, your websites. But the, from my perspective, what happens is if they find something like you're not patching your servers correctly or in time, what's happening on the outside is probably also happening internally, mm-hmm. right? So if you're paying, if you're doing your due diligence internally, it's going to reflect on the outside. Conversely, if you're not doing your due diligence on the outside, it's probably going to reflect on the inside. So, I mean, in summary, to me, when I look at tools and stuff, it's really first the question here, which way do you want to go? Mm-hmm. To me, the SIG is the best choice because thousands upon thousands of companies are now adopting it and they want you to look at their SIG. They don't care about the questions that you come up with. And by the way, I don't think there's anybody smart enough to really come up with all of the questions that are needed in a questionnaire. That's why I like the SIG for that reason. And then, you know, so you've got that to deal with. You know, here again, OneTrust is a great platform to use. I mean, clearly there are others like ServiceNow and others. And then for continuous monitoring, you know, security scorecard, BlackKite, UpGuard, 
pitch site for yours. Right. Team so, Tumory Orbit for any listeners. Yes. It's, it's, a, it's a new product. Uh, so not many folks have heard it. I don't hold it against you for not hearing of it. We just launched it uh, this, this last year. So, but no. So frameworks, I totally agree with your assessment on that because like you said, it's very, very hard to think of all the right things to ask. The only thing that I have sometimes seen, and this is an experience, you know, an observation, is sometimes people lose sight of the business. They start to think of just the questionnaire as opposed to being a Rosetta Stone. They see it as a set of commandments and they forget that really the, it's a guide. It's, it's not a set of laws. And that like, for example, you know, Boeing makes airplanes. They don't make seatbelts, right? So, but they need the seatbelts. You have to have the seatbelt. So if you start discounting your suppliers because they don't meet some type of grandiose policy that's been thrust upon maybe your industry, you have to remember that you still needed that. There was a reason why you started talking to them in the first place and whatnot. And I see, I won't say time and time again, but I've seen it a couple of times where people discounted a small business because like you said, that small business, they're just not there. They're not there. They don't know anything about it. They make screws. They don't make IT. But in the end, they say, oh, sorry, you don't do IT. So I I can't buy my screws from you. But they could have been the best screws for the what it is that you needed ever. And sometimes policy people who let's call it policy exercisers sometimes lose the trees in the forest, if you will. So in my experience, that's the one thing. The only thing I would say about frameworks, a fantastic guide. But just remember, they're not commandments. Thank you. You know, you drive an excellent point because one of the things I always ask, what is this company doing for us? Tell me, what are they doing? And depending on that response, if it's screws, I'm saying, well, why are we doing a review? This is insanity. We don't need to do a review if they're manufacturing screws, right? Right. You know, same thing if a company is doing lawn maintenance, you don't need to do a security review. But sometimes we get, to your point, so entrenched, we forget to ask the most basic question. Right. What is it you're providing to us? And why does it matter? And what does it matter to us? And I don't want to pick on Target. And, you know, I don't have any kind of inside scoop there. Anything I, I only know what was in the press. But the thing I realized about their situation was they were given, they gave that supplier the same level of access as their critical suppliers. Now, I'm not saying that HVAC isn't critical, but there are technological solutions, for example, VLANs, that they could have put these devices that they needed, they could have put them on there, and they didn't need to have the same access controls as you know their accountants, but they did. And that's kind of, so they, they were able to access their point of sale systems because they had a, a single scope policy approach, or at least that's what it seems to me. Like appearance-wise, no. it seems like they made some simple mistakes that they probably could have avoided. Yeah, it's a good point. You mentioned VLANs. Uh, So a number of years ago, I was doing a review and I said, so where are you with your server updates? Well, Norm, we haven't updated the latest servers, the latest Windows servers, OS. I said, okay, I'm all right with that. But what I need you to do is to take those servers, put them on a separate VLAN because our information is on those servers and I want you to restrict access. It was done and done. Right. To your point, you've got it. You have to understand technology so you can ask the right questions and then make suggestions as well. And the only way you do that is by doing it, sitting next to someone that knows and you learn as you go. Absolutely. So we just covered a lot of ground there and kind of a galaxy of advice there. If you could narrow it down, though, if you had a single, like a one thing, like if you could say, 
if nothing else, remember this. What's one piece of advice that you would share to others who are managing cyber risk at public companies? Be diligent. Don't take anything for granted. Be a little paranoid about things. Just because you're paranoid doesn't mean you're not being followed. Sure. That's my favorite saying. Sure. I have a story on that if you want to hear it. <laughs> right? So it goes a long way. Don't assume. I'm going to say that again. Don't assume everything is looking good. Right? And one of the biggest mistakes that a lot of people that are in risk sometimes, they cop an attitude where they tend to dictate rather than engage. You know, if you're, you're working with all of your people throughout IT, networking, IAM, you name it, you're working with them. And if you want them to really do good by you, engage them. Do not dictate. The other thing, too, is ask for help from these guys. Don't tell them. Ask, hey, can you help me? Asking for help goes a very, very long way rather than dictating. And I remember at one of the companies at which I was working, I developed a really good relationship with the network administrators. And I was doing a review of some of the controls. And in it, one of the guys said to me, Norm, what you're asking is I can actually frame it up such that I'll fake it for you. Let me show you how I can do that. And he showed me, here's what I suggest how you can let me give you the workaround on that so that won't happen. That kind of feedback doesn't happen unless you are working with your teams and not dictating to them. Yeah, the dictation model is rarely followed with any degree of integrity either. The people who are listening to your dictation often end up either being resentful or even sure. worse, kind of left behind. You talk over them and they didn't really follow. If you're not engaged, how will you know if your students are listening? You know, yeah. not to compare it to, you know, a student-teacher arrangement, but I think it's a fundamental idea that a lot of people lose. So turning it around as opposed to the thought leader, you know, or as the leadership role, the decision maker, as the practitioner, so the person who's actually doing it, what do you think are the most critical skills that are going to either are now or will be necessary for folks to kind of succeed in the, for this next, you know, say five, 10 years? Fair enough. Well, I think, you know, it's not going to fit everybody, but really coming from an IT audit background really helps. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's helped me immensely because I look at things differently. You know, I look at what is the downside, not the upside. And when you've done enough auditing, you kind of pick that up and you learn it, right? So I think there's that part of it. Then you have the security landscape, right? Which is constantly evolving. Right. So I think security practitioners really need to continually develop and to really update their skills so they can stay ahead of the threat. Things are continuous changing. I remember the days, David, and so do you, when it maybe took 18 months or 24 months for technology to evolve. Mm -hmm. Today, it's less than 12 months in many cases. Sure. Things are moving that quickly. So I think you have to really be diligent and stay on top of a number of different areas. And I want to actually kind of go over some of those skills that will likely be critical for security practitioners over the next decade. First and foremost is risk management. Think about it, right? Today, security practitioners need to have a deep, a very deep understanding of risk management principles and the ability to apply them to their organizations. And each company is going to be different. 
Each company's got different kinds of risk, but you have to look at that. But it also includes being able to assess risk, prioritize your risk, and develop a risk mitigation strategy. I mean, it's just key today. That next is cybersecurity operations. You know, as the threat landscape continues to evolve, security practitioners really need to be able to detect and respond to and contain the security incidents. You know, it kind of requires a deep understanding of security operations, tools, and techniques. As I've shared with a couple of my friends, and you may find this silly, there isn't enough money on the planet for me to become a CISO, unless I'm guaranteed that I can be there for at least 10 years and won't get fired if there's a breach. Sure. You know? Other than that, yeah, it's just a, it's a painful, painful job. And I respect CISO. I have lots of friends that are CISOs for very, very big corporations. The next thing you got to think about cloud security, right? More and more companies are actually moving to the cloud, both with data and their applications. So it's really becoming important for those security practitioners to have an expertise in cloud security. You know, clearly AWS, Azure and Google make it easy, right? Because they're going to do a lot of the work for you. But in doing that, you as a practitioner have to understand the user entity controls that go along with each of those implementations. And that's key. And I make sure with all of our staff, if they're responsible for cloud applications or data or whatever, I'll go through their SOC 2s, type 2s, I'll look mm-hmm. to see what the user entity controls are. I will send it to them, have them sign off saying they understand that there are user entity controls. And in some cases, if no user entity controls are required, then they have to sign off on that so they understand. So I have to make them aware. It's just a little bit of help you know, to go along. Sure. The other areas, talking about, <laughs> one of my favorites, and I'm actually going to a little bit later as well, is artificial intelligence and machine learning. I think we talked about a little bit earlier, but you really have to look and be very diligent because how do you know if the data that you're looking at from artificial intelligence is non-biased? How do you know if it's accurate? How do you know if that data is not being put in by somebody that has no knowledge of what's going on, right? Or they're pulling it from non-trusting sources, you're going to have problems. So there's a lot that goes into AI. We're just starting to look at it. But I can give you 20 questions, 30 questions right now that you have to look at in AI if you really want to do a deep dive into it. And to have the assurance that what you're reading is factual, correct, and accurate. Mm-hmm. Okay. Next, you know, regulation and compliance. Right? I mean, security practitioners today need to be familiar with the regulations and standards that apply to their organizations, such as the GDPR protection, payment card industry, PCI, DSS, you know, all of the various standards. If your company is operating with those, you better be aware and make sure that you have the right controls in place for GDPR, that you're doing an annual PCI review, you know, et cetera. And then I think lastly is uh, communication and leadership. You know, effective communication and leadership skills really set the tone. Think of it as tone at the top, right? And you got to have that. You have to know how to communicate. But if you're in IT, 
you cannot communicate your thoughts in IT language. You have to make it simple, stupid, and clear. I mean, right down to the fifth grade level so that anybody with whom you are speaking will understand what you're talking about. So I think that's the last thing. So, you know, I mean, to me, these are some of the skills that I think are required today for any type of security practitioner. Yeah, I would absolutely agree. In particular, the last one, I think it's unfortunate that we found ourselves at a point, at least in this timeline, let's call it, but we found ourselves in a point where everybody knows that security is important and they know that it's so important that you'd better just nod and say yes, even if you don't know what the person is saying. And I think that's why, you know, you had talked about the complexities of some of the frameworks that that are popular, in particular, the degree of the questions that are in them, you know, when you get to a thousand and twenty eight questions, like you said, you know, the reason why those are necessary is because without that guidance, someone would be asking questions and everyone would just nod and say yes, even though they don't actually know what it is being asked of them. And and because they don't, no one wants to look like a fool. No one wants to be the person who uh, has to admit, oh, hey, here I am in some situation that I shouldn't be in. But the reality is, is that in my experience, because I'm not a person, I'm not an academic, I I don't have a degree. Uh, In fact, I don't even have any certifications, but I've taught 400 level collegiate courses. And I have floated to the top of our industry uh, and advised, you know, boards and governments and all kinds of things, but not because I speak in lofty language and make everybody in the room and press all the buzzwords I can present, but because I, I try to communicate to the people in the room. And I know that what we're talking about is scary, but is also super important. And so that last piece, at least in my opinion, is probably the most important one. Like it doesn't matter what you know, you have to make sure that other people can receive what you know, because there's only one of you and you're going to need the help of everybody. And you need to make sure that they understand, you know, what's the fight that we're in and who's our adversary and what does win look like? I mean, if you can't convey those things, you know, that's a huge challenge. To your point, too, you know, I think the phrase is keep it simple, stupid. Yeah. Uh, you know, kiss it. But yeah, I mean, especially when you're talking to a board, you have to assume they know nothing about IT. Mm-hmm. And you have to talk, you know, as to your point, uh, you know, fifth or sixth grade level. So they understand the concepts. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. In particular, if you're going to rely on their decision, like if you're not informing the decision maker with all of the details that you can in a way that you know that they're actually informed. The key word there being informed. Like you can't just spout out words. You have to make sure that they actually understand what it is you're saying because otherwise they're not making a decision for you. They're not doing what it is that you think they're doing. Now, if you're just looking for someone to blame, then sure, then maybe go that way. But if you're actually looking for sage advice, then you have to make sure that you know the sage is, is following along. So, Norman, we have covered all kinds of stuff today, and I, just being conscious of the time, your time and mine, we'll just go ahead and wrap things up. Let me ask, though, of all of the things in all of your experiences as you've come through, and I know I prepped you with the things I was going to ask, but our conversation right. kind of led me to this unexpected question, if you will. But of all of the things that you have seen and you know learned in your time, what's the one thing that has surprised you the most as to far as where that we have landed? Uh, relative to where you began? Like, what's the thing that you think to yourself and say, wow, I didn't think we would be doing that? Well, I think, I'll tell you where it just happened, and that's artificial intelligence. Yeah. That has surprised me the most in how people are using it. 
I've used it a little bit and it was good information that I got. I was working with one company where I put in some questions. The responses that came back were incorrect. I put in my input on that and they actually corrected the responses going forward. So I think that was really key. The other thing that is scaring me a little bit, actually a lot, about where we're going to be in the next five years, I'd like to share that with you because I think it's important. Sure. Mm-hmm. There's that thing called quantum computing. Mm-hmm. All right? We've People have heard about it, don't have a clue what it is, but they know it's expensive and it can do quick stuff. Let me give you an illustration of what quantum computing can do. Currently, to decrypt a 120-bit AES cipher will take more than 10 to 13.7 billion years. Sure. Right? So to decrypt a 128-bit cipher will take more than 10 to 13 billion years, depending on who you believe right now. So somewhere between there, right? Computer World Magazine has suggested that using a 50-qubit quantum computer, the time to decrypt that same cipher, right? We went from 10 to 13 billion years. Using a 15-qubit quantum computer, the decrypting will take about six months. Yeah. That scares me. And it scares me because of the possibility of certain nation states such as North Korea, Iran, Russia, China, getting a hold of quantum, thinking what it can do. Sure. I mean, that really, I like it and it scares me at the same time. Yeah, I started my career in high-performance computing. This is one of my keen interests. And one of the things that I don't think a lot of people realize when they imagine quantum computing is even putting something like Moore's Law aside. Let's just take frameworks today. One of the things that I think a lot of people overlook is that the speed of an electron relative to the speed of a photonic wave, they are massively different. I mean, so let's just assume that the computational capability doesn't go any faster and just bus speed improves to move at the speed of light. That alone is going to be an incredible, an incredible speed up. So now factor in notions such as Moore's Law, And imagine what engineering capabilities uh, will change once we start to apply AI to actual engineering, to where the devices are engineering themselves, if you will. I totally agree with you. In fact, I suspect that one of the large focuses today when it comes to national security is we are so close to having quantum computing be a reality that today the the game is to record everything we can because we're going to soon be able to come back and read it. So the name of the game today is just record, record everything, because whether you can read it today or not is irrelevant because you're going to be able to read it soon or guess what it was was said. Let's say you do get, you know, glimpses of it because of, say, encryption failures periodically in a communication stream because everybody makes mistakes. PGP, uh, I have a full PGP policy. At some point, someone will accidentally send a piece of mail that isn't encrypted. And say you get one in 10,000 email messages from what I've seen of just, and this is like, has been largely presented to us as novelty, uh, the chat GPT. I can only imagine what its true capabilities actually are. 
But so even the novelty component of it, that's been exposed to the rest of us. If you were to take, you know, this one in a thousand messages, I'm not convinced that AI couldn't look up and determine what the rest of the conversation likely was and give you some deterministic value of this is probably what they're talking about. And this is probably what it was that was said. And when, you know, when you factor in speed of light calculation and computation, we're into, you know, Star Trek, the next generation, but that society and mankind hasn't caught up to that. You know, unfortunately, we're not all working towards the goodwill of society and man right now. No, we're not. So sad commentary, but yes, I agree. Yeah. So I, I totally agree with you. So Norman, thank you very much for your time today. It's been very insightful. I'm always glad to hear folks such as yourself who talk about kind of the situations that we're in. And I know our listeners, many of which are young, or I should say young in age, but new to the industry, if you will. And it's always good for us to kind of show folks, you know, that, you know, there's still a massive human element to it. It's not a technology thing. We're still in the human business no, with the technology. It is. Uh, that's what no, our CEO that's right. uh, likes to say. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, no, no matter what you say, this it's human technology. With, we're, we're working, you know, it's people. It's people. And uh, you've got to right. be nice to people if you want to get good information. That's right. Totally agreed. So, Norman, how do uh, our listeners uh, follow on with you if they want to huh. uh, follow you online? Do you have social media? Do you have LinkedIn? What's the way that people can follow along with you? Best way is LinkedIn. All they have to do is go into LinkedIn, type in Norman J. Levine. I will pop up. I'm I'm the only Norman J. Levine on LinkedIn. And I'll be right there and you'll get to see my profile, et cetera. Okay, very well. And uh, to all the other Norman J. Levines that ever want to use LinkedIn, good luck. Uh, Norman's already taken it. (laughs) That's right. Thank you, David. (laughs) All right. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us. You're very welcome. Have a good one. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Future of Cyber Risk podcast brought to you by Team Cymru. For the latest episodes, please visit team-cymru.com or search Future of Cyber Risk on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks, and we'll catch you on the next episode.